When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply quick message from me before we get into today's episode, just to say that there is talk of sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, quite near the start of my conversation with today's guest. So if that might be something that is difficult for you to hear, just be warned that happens very early on in my conversation. And we've also included some support information in today's show notes. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Happy Happy Talk. Now maybe you'll have an earworm of Captain Sensible's 1980s cover of that song in your head. Terry Pratchett once said, One of the universal rules of happiness is always be wary of any helpful item that weighs less than its operating manual. But actually happiness is a bit more complicated than that. A recent survey of over 154,000 people in 146 countries has found that the world is at its lowest level of happiness since the survey began, which isn't surprising really. We have got some shit going on, to be fair. The UN's first World Happiness Report 10 years ago rated Denmark the happiest country in the world. The United States came 11th and the UK 18th. It's Finland now that ranks the happiest country in the world, still followed by Denmark, and then Switzerland, Iceland, and Norway. And the very happiest city in all the world is apparently Helsinki. Yes, the capital of Finland. I've spent a lot of time actually in Helsinki over the years, most of it drinking shots and jumping in and out of saunas and icy pools. That's quite hard to pull off in Kentish town, but if we could, I reckon we'd be happy enough in NW5 too. Countries that place in the top 10 at Eurovision get a happiness boost that apparently lasts several months, which doesn't really help the UK either at the moment, does it? I'm at home, yeah, but in Denmark for the whole, I mean, launching a book in a pandemic, no travel, obviously. That's my guest today, Helen Russell. Oscar Wilde, who's always good for a quote, said, some cause happiness wherever they go, others whenever they go. Research has shown that happiness increases after middle age, referred to as the happiness U-curve, which we talk about in this episode. Academics have found increasing evidence that happiness through adulthood is U-shaped, with life satisfaction falling in our 20s and then our 30s, hitting a trough in our late 40s before increasing from 50 until our 80s. This has been termed the paradox of ageing. I don't care what it's bloody called. I like it. 
And finally, I can't have an episode at the moment, as you might have noticed, where I don't mention dogs. So I'll just throw in a little statistic that 36% of dog owners describe themselves as very happy, compared to just 18% of cat owners. Well, I'm about to have a dog to join my cat. So at that point, I will be 54% happy. That's how it works, isn't it? Oh, and one last thing. When babies are too happy, they have to look away so they don't get overwhelmed. This is a real thing and it's called gaze aversion. Oh, your fringe is looking a lot better than mine. Mine has gone proper to power. Helen is a best-selling author, journalist and speaker. Her first book, The Year of Living Danishly, uncovering the secrets of what was the world's happiest country for many years until recently, became an overnight international bestseller. Her most recent book, How to Be Sad, has been described as the happiest book you'll ever read about being sad. Having researched happiness for many years, Helen found herself an expert in sadness. The book's premise is that we can't avoid sadness, but we can handle it better so it doesn't dip into something worse. Helen also has a How To Be Sad podcast with an array of guests, almost as good as the ones on Namaste Motherfuckers. Helen and I talked about happiness, sadness, life, death, parenthood, fertility, arrival fallacy, being ginger, crying on planes, crying off planes, telephone phobia, loneliness, Scandinavia, altruism, therapy, medication and washing machines. But I started by asking, given her extensive work in the field of happiness, how happy she is. Oh, good question. I think it depends on the day and even the hour within the day. I feel as though, um, as with many people, I spent a lot of my personal and professional life kind of chasing happiness and thinking this was the goal and thinking I was maybe doing all the things right to be happy but sadness is also going to happen to all of us sometimes in heartbreaking ways and I think for years I tried to push that down almost like a beach ball in a swimming pool and it's just going to pop up somewhere so when I started digging into sadness as well, I realized that actually there's no hiding from that. And so some some days will be sad, and especially in a global pandemic, some days are going to suck. And, and that's OK. That's helpful, too. It's a great time to write a book called How to Be Sad when we all did feel um, slightly sad and slightly isolated. I think anything that shows that there's a kind of collective experience is rather reassuring at the moment. And in terms of your your own experience. So the book, um, which we'll put links to in the in the show notes, How to Be Sad. So tell me about how you got, you got to that by researching happiness and then realising along the way that it wasn't really about a quest for happiness, but you're better to describe than me what you came across. Yeah, I think as, as you do, back when we could go out and about more, um, I would, I wrote a book about happiness concepts around the world and I would go around the world and talk about it. And that was lovely travel, exciting and seeing people. That would make you happy often, doing that for a that living. That would make yeah. you happy, right? But I would often notice that people at talks would, would come up afterwards and say, I, you know, how can I happy? I, how can I be happy? I just want to be happy. And sometimes they would be people who just lost loved ones or been made redundant or been made homeless once. And, and I would, really try and kind of understand that sometimes 
we're not going to be happy. Sometimes sadness is the same response when we experience these losses or disappointments. And I came to realize that a lot of people were almost phobic of feeling sad. And actually it's something that I've run away from a lot in my life too. I ended up talking to a very nice therapist about all of this. And he said it was no surprise at all that I'd chosen to focus on researching into happiness for for almost 10 years because I was also quite scared of sadness. It's not something that was encouraged when I was growing up. Still very much the idea and you had a very sad your, your first memory well I'll let you describe what it was because that's very moving and that's that's a very core part of the book isn't it the narrative arc of the book centers around that and it comes full circle to that so so yeah t- tell us what that was yeah so what, my first memory is um, when my sister died of sudden infant death syndrome so I was really little but at that time nobody really thought they should perhaps explain it to children explain what was happening my dad left soon after and suddenly it was just me and my mum and still nobody really told me what was going on so my family kind of halved in size within the space of about three months and nobody talked about it. And so I think when kids aren't told the truth, aren't told what's going on, you end up making a lot of stuff mm-hmm. up yourself. And so I think you know, there's nature, nurture, who knows how life might have turned out otherwise. But I certainly think that avoidance of sadness was was set on that course from a really young age for me. And that's partly not being allowed to talk about it then. It's it because there's, I think when, when I've looked at kind of the topic of sadness through experience you know, I, I always I started I had sort of depression in my 40s for what I thought was the first time and then actually I thought was it the first time or was it the first time I was willing to engage with it and, I, and that's the kind of good a good question but part of it is talking about it isn't it but part of it's actually expressing it and I think I I mistook years and years of therapy where I understood a lot about myself for thinking well I've dealt with this but actually you can think about it talk about it understand it but unless you actually express it or can actually feel it you're still not quite there what what do you think about sort of talking versus feeling and, and your own experiences of therapy oh that's I think that's a really good point yeah I think there's certainly um an intellectualizing mm-hmm. that goes on and you think well I get this you know I've my brain works I've read all the books this is fine I get this but if you're not willing to as you say almost sit with that sadness and I think the lockdowns and and the pandemic have been a real I don't want to say opportunity, but it's been a real time where the noise of everyday life and the normal busyness of life has, has been stripped away. And many of us have been just stuck with our feelings and stuck with the choices that we've made and, and time to reflect and, and contemplate those. And and that's when I think a lot of those feelings that perhaps we haven't want to deal with have, have come back up. So yeah, that's a really good point. I think there definitely is, is a difference between knowing and feeling. Yeah, I've even had um, I, my my current therapist, I say that like I'm about to finish with her, which I'm not, I don't ever want to finish with her. I call her Yoda, but that's not her real name. But Yoda has said to me that she sometimes thinks I use therapy to get in the way of coping with sadness because I almost come in and want to sort of expunge myself of sadness. So I'll tell her the whole story, get it all off my chest and want a sort of catharsis. And she sometimes thinks that I talk and analyze and use emotional intelligence as almost a barricade against feeling those things. I don't know if any of that sounds familiar to you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think um, I am very grateful for for getting lovely therapy and I've had bad therapy as well yes, and I think we all have if I, we've had therapy yes, we've had bad yes therapy. right yeah and I feel like it's such um it, it's such a, a challenge in terms of accessibility for so many people and 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 that's not good there aren't enough therapists even if it, there weren't the financial constraints at play so um I guess in answer to your question yeah that there's something certainly I've experienced but from from researching and from speaking to 
um, psychologists and psychotherapists across many different fields now, I was really struck by something Julia Samuel, mm -hmm. um, the, the great psychotherapist said that actually it doesn't have to be talking to a professional it can just be talking to someone who's not going to interrupt mm -hmm. someone who will listen without judgment and that felt like a game changer for me in terms of just learning to talk about those feelings so it's not that you're specifically maybe just going to a therapist mm -hmm. to get out those feelings of sadness you are carrying with you in your life you are making friends with them almost and you are willing to talk to another person about them mm -hmm. on more of a perhaps um an equal footing mm -hmm. so that's been quite an interesting mm -hmm. experience as well and does that because one of the things that we don't do, I know when I trained as to be a, a coach and I you were taught that if you talk for more than 25 percent of the session you're not really doing your job right which was a real revelation compared to my kind of business career where it was all about holding the stage and being kind of in control and there's something about the quality of actually being with somebody else isn't there being with your own feelings and thoughts but actually being able to be with somebody who might be in grief or distress and not solve it for them do you find you've changed in your capacity not to rescue people and to just be there for them now that you've done all this research I think there's definitely that compulsion to um to fix people and to be perfect and, for them and perfect for us well, yeah, yeah and perfectionism yeah. is another massive yeah. problem but yeah I think um I think I'm definitely more aware of of not trying to necessarily even make things better just listen and just be there but it's it's not easy and I think many of us are those people we are used to we're the doers we're used to getting things done and uh, yeah there's a problem I'm going to help you I'm going to fix it and and sometimes yeah you just need to listen and be quiet and you do get rewarded for that up to a point don't you I, I always think you know our strategies that we have that might protect ourselves from actually feeling they work really well until they don't work you know I sometimes think that's why the wheels come off the bus in middle age because we've had 20 25 years of getting rewarded for being you know perfectionists and overachievers and never sitting still and workaholics but that can't go on for decades and decades, right? So those things might serve you well until they don't. This is, and this is what I always thought as well. But speaking to Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar from Harvard, mm -hmm. uh, who ran the, the Harvard course on, on happiness mm -hmm. for, for many years, he described all of that kind of working so hard to achieve things and always being on the go and perfectionism as a sunk cost which I found quite jarring. A sunk cost. A sunk yep. cost, yes. Because it's very um, it's very attractive to think, well, yes, I perhaps it wasn't maybe the healthiest way of thinking, but um, I got a lot done. I, I was rewarded for this behaviour in many ways. And he said, actually, you could have still achieved those things, but not perhaps miserable along the way, or, mm. or that actually it is possible to to get all these good things in life without the pain and without perfectionism or beating ourselves up. And that's, that's quite a difficult thing to hear. But um, yeah, the more people I spoke to about this, the more the idea that chasing things the whole time and trying to move so fast and how action is so prized in our society, mm -hmm. whereas inaction is not. Mm -hmm. And in rest is when a lot of the good things mm -hmm. happen, like great ideas and creativity. Um, it's, it's been quite um, humbling to wake up to the fact that I may have missed out on a lot of that as well. So we could have been overachieving people without being overachieving fuckwits, basically. So we <laughs> yeah, could have just exactly. cut the fuckwit bit out and still got yes. where we are now today. Can you imagine? Yeah. 
<laughs> don't ruin my whole life's you know myth <laughs> and is it um in, in terms of the idea of of the you interviewed Mo Gord at one of your episodes and he's anyone who hasn't um listened to your podcast it's brilliant same name as your book how to be sad and he's got a I loved his approach to happiness which is fundamentally looking at that kind of happiness equation right that between your reality and your expectation the bigger that gap the more likely there is to have scope not to be happy so it's not about what your reality is it's about what your expectation is vis-a-vis your reality am I summing that up correctly yeah absolutely yeah and there's and there's lots of um research in in that area as well of suggesting that actually um even goals that may be intrinsic goals or goals that really mean something to us that really align with our values they they can still be perhaps a disappointment when we meet them because of our expectations mm-hmm. because our expectations may be skewed by society or social media or whatever so um I looked at a rival fallacy quite a lot mm, as well I found that really interesting that, and you talked to the youngest yes. guy who ever got to the north pole is that right <laughs> yes. or the south pole I yes. don't really know my and poles, he, he went to both okay um, good. he's gone to all the poles but basically his main take home was that he worked for you know, over over every decade to get to the to these expeditions and to do these great physical feats of endurance and when he got there it was all just a bit shabby <laughs> he just felt very underwhelmed not even a pole and was there not even a pole and there were no kind of flags waving when he got home no no space in the queen queen's honors list so and he just turned yes, up back at the airport flatness. and it was just his yeah. mum waiting for him wasn't it yes. yeah you said that yes, and exactly. also the bit that you really yeah it's in your book it really struck me I was driving listening to you telling me this story when he um he texted his who was it his mum, his girlfriend, and someone else. Um, when he got there, and no one, and they were all that he there. got voicemail. Yeah, yeah. I know. So, so you know, you can strive and strive, and, and still, it doesn't quite mean what it what it could. So, I think we have to be expectations is so damaging. We have to be so careful because even things that we're wanting for all of the right reasons, we can still be setting ourselves up for disappointment if we are perhaps not incredibly clear-eyed about it. And I guess a couple of the things in your own life that have, uh, and again, this is all written really beautifully about in the book, but one of them having children, which I know for you was not a given, and you went through a long period of thinking perhaps you wouldn't and couldn't have children and going through IVF and then had one child and then a lovely surprise of two more so um <laughs> so a little one and then Ta-da! yeah and then twins and that that and the sort of guilt and again lots of people listening will probably relate to this I think we're all really mindful wherever we are on the parent sort of poll whether we've got them haven't got them want them don't want them that we have to kind of check our privilege in our position because there'll be people feeling something very different to what we're thinking and thinking perhaps we're really lucky I know when I say I'm an empty nester there'll be people thinking well lucky you I'm your age and I haven't got kids out there in the world and some people thinking you know I'm really glad I didn't go that route but for you it seemed in the book there were a few points of real emotional tension within yourself and that one of those I guess having your first baby given what you went through with your sister and also what you'd gone through to have that baby. It seemed that it was a very loaded time for you emotionally, as I guess it is for any mum. But but what was it like for you? Yes, I was certainly hypervigilant when my son was around the seven month mark, which is when my sister died. So I was And how old was, were you when your sister died? You were a toddler. I was near three. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, uh, when my son was little, I was, I was that mother, you know, always checking the temperature and checking the covers and checking nothing was near the mouth and, and all of that. And I still had a lot of guilt about even becoming pregnant when I had allied myself to the, do the childless, not by choice Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, camp, for example, mm -hmm. I felt like I had defected and I had, um, you know, betrayed 
them in some way. And also I felt I couldn't complain about anything despite the sleepless nights that we all go through. I had quite a traumatic birth, but I very much felt that I I didn't, I knew how painful it was to really want children and not have children Mm -hmm. and how you don't really want to hear someone who's just had a baby moaning Mm -hmm. about it. So yeah, it was, there's a lot going on. And, and as you say, you feel quite isolated. You feel quite alone. Mm-hmm. That's really hard. Although he was ginger and is ginger, which obviously means you got the absolute <laughs> best child you could have got, Helen. So I hope you yes, know that that's very you know, special. Yeah, you got, yeah. Is he your only ginger child? Have you got her either? He's my only, I mean, goodness knows where it came from. How much, how much ginger is in your family? Well, in my family, uh, plenty of ginger, but not from my mum and dad. So my mum is blonde. My dad has got brown hair and me and my brother are both completely ginger. And similarly, my children, my son's got a ginger beard he's I should say he's 24 he's not you know not a toddler with a ginger beard um <laughs> he's, he's got a ginger beard but brown hair and my daughter's got no ginger at all so I do think it alternates have you not got any okay. ginger anywhere in your family no, no mm. not not a sniff of it so surprise all around yes but, and a very um, understanding husband he's like it doesn't matter we've <laughs> yes, got this child yeah. now we'll just be delighted yeah. and you've got so that that seemed like um a sort of an understandable stress point but there's also seemed to be a shift and you did describe it well but it was also quite nuanced as to what happened with your first child in terms of you almost letting go a bit and then your child becoming a little bit more, everyone sort of bedding in together a bit more. There was suddenly it seemed less tense when your 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 little boy got a bit bigger. Was there a sort of noticeable shift in how you were as a parent or, or what, what do you think happened? Was it just time going by? Um, I, do you mean in terms of um, relaxing about, you know, hypervigilance and and about? also just the struggle of having kids that can sometimes be much kind of feistier and trickier than others where you're like, God, my yes. one doesn't ever, <laughs> my one's not yes. easy like other people. Yes, that, that side I know what you're things. getting at. Yeah. Yes. So it turns out that where I live in Denmark, Danish babies are some of the happiest, most peaceful ones in the world, allegedly. I mean, who's polling the babies? That's but annoying Danish when you've got a ginger English calling yes. one. You don't yes. need smug Danes around one. you. Yeah. So I had quite a, a, yeah, a feisty, um, he would just, he would punch the air from morning till night and then stay awake all night as well and not really eat and do all of those things. So yeah, he he was, um, you know, who knows, because he was my first. I don't know if that's normal, but certainly compared to my twins, he was, um, he was fiery. And I'm not sure that our shoulders really relaxed until everybody became much more robust and everybody passed that kind of, even that toddler mark because I was so conscious of of remembering when I was around three and how how much I remembered of that time and how the impressions and the, and the sort of sensory um, stimulus around me was was had made such a big impact on my life that I, I was very aware then and I was quite sort of on it then so now the youngest of four I think it's only really about now that the shoulders begin to to lower yeah and it's also carrying through there's all that sort of trauma that you've carried through as a, it, it's funny the shift isn't it from being child to parent and when you suddenly go you've had all the sort of pressure of you know your parents having split up worrying about how your mum had coped with everything she'd gone through and then suddenly that shift where you're the one who's in charge and I think it is it's it's a phenomenal thing to go through it's an amazing thing to go through but it's the weirdest thing isn't it where you're suddenly like right I am supposed to be a grown-up and I've got no bloody, and there's also no time when you feel shit on those days. It's all saying, I'll go and have a walk or go paddleboarding or whatever. But when you've got a tiny baby, you can't. So you're kind of just sat there with the with whatever you're feeling, right? And no time to even think about it. Yes, it definitely got to the stage. Um, and, and their dad travelled quite a lot back when that was also an option. And it got to the stage where I hallucinated colours. The sleep deprivation got so wow. bad. And that was when I ended up getting help. I I 
went back to work because I kind of had to and also I wanted to to just to feel like well I knew what I was doing there but um but it's a lot yeah I had from thinking I would have no children to having three in three years is, is a lot that is a lot and, yes I hope my agent is listening to this he went through a very similar thing to you with a very similar oh age goodness. gap and has been going through it in the pandemic um but poor oh thing goodness. yeah no it's um uh, yeah all of our hearts go out to her amazing woman that she is and in terms of the um so you had you're in Denmark but not because you're with a Danish man right so when I first saw that you were in I assumed because my dream is to find a lovely Scandi man and oh, spend the rest yes, of my days nice with him a lovely Viking but you took your own uh, Yorkshire man over to Denmark you you, you yeah you decided <laughs> yes. to do it the other way around it was a BYO yeah. yes I brought my own um, Englishman uh, over uh, yes so we're both British so the Danish is still poor but there are lots of lovely Vikings around Cali come on I over. would like it's to this is really why I've got you on the podcast I yeah, just need fine. you you're absolutely invited <laughs> to the wedding not a problem and is it in terms of the because um, I my, my kid's dad is Dutch and I lived in Holland with him for a bit and um, the Dutch speak brilliant English I know I've been to Denmark a few times they are pretty good on the old English as well right so you don't need to do it but the culture the sort of northern European culture so Denmark has ranked consistently as the happiest or one of the happiest countries in the world although I believe it has more recently been toppled by Finland is that right or is that just a yes, rumor nobody can believe no it's true yeah it's stunned we didn't mind it to Norway losing to them but to the Finns that's something well else. it's also funny because I used to um we had a joint company when I was at ITV we had a company a joint venture with a Finnish company and we used to have alternate month board meetings in Helsinki and in London and I mean they definitely know how to party like there was a lot of drinking a lot of sort of nakedness in terms of saunas and 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 cold dips and stuff but I wouldn't have said they seemed particularly happy to me and I actually thought there was also a statistic that they're one of the most depressed outside of wherever else like I don't know can countries have be the happiest at the happy end and the saddest at the sad end is that possible I think there's definitely something in Is that they, they call it like the suicide paradox because actually suicide rates are quite high That's in what I Scandinavian thought. countries yeah. and antidepressant use is high that seasonal affective disorders understandably sky high but um there's almost this idea because the welfare state has a lot of things sorted for you you know they're quite secular countries you don't need to pray to god that everything is going to be yeah. okay because the government has it sorted so most people have a they they're not necessarily happy but they have the reasons for unhappiness removed okay. from their life life is pretty good but that means that if you're living in one of these happy countries and you're not feeling great and you you read that you're supposed to be and other people seem to be you feel worse by comparison is one of the theories anyway. Because I know I've been to Iceland a few times. I did a show about going to um, going to Iceland when I had a car crash and um, nearly died. And I called the show Invisible. Oh it was the year I turned 50. And I also <gasps> nearly got lost in the snow. Um, so it was, a, yeah, it was a show called Invisible. But I've been, and I went back afterwards another couple of years later just to sort of revisit it, not in, <laughs> not in deep trauma. But they bloody drink. I know, I, by the way, I'm aware Iceland is not the same as Finland. But as another dark country that is, northern um it's they they do they drink a lot and there's massive amounts of depression as well and self-medication through drink whereas i do think having traveled widely across scandinavia you do get this yeah i was surprised that finland had outstripped denmark but you wrote um the year of living danishly that was your first book and i would have been very happy with that because it became an international bestseller virtually immediately didn't it so that to me i'd be like well that's would i have a rival fallacy then if i had written that book because it seems pretty good to me well that was lovely but i was also um so it came out i think when i so i had to sort of write it when i the first year i was there and i became pregnant and i was very sick throughout my pregnancy and didn't realize i was pregnant till quite late proper jeremy kyle style and 
uh, and then having the baby it was quite this traumatic birth. I had to go back in and out of hospital, be cauterized and all sorts of horrific things. Um, and so when it came out, I was kind of over here. I wasn't in any of it. So it didn't really mean that much. And then I thought, well, maybe that's just what books do. And then I realized when I published more books that no, actually, that was a lovely thing. And that does not happen very often. So I, yes, in retrospect, I wish I had been more grateful and enjoyed it more at the time. But when I was in it, I was, there was nothing grand about it. I mean, my child was still vomiting on me. And my neighbor was puking as I tried to get in the car to go and speak to um, Jane Garvey on Woman's Hour. There was nothing glamorous about it. But now in retrospect, yes, it seems lovely. It's nice to be a best-selling international author being puked upon. I mean, that's got to be better than just being <laughs> just being that's a true. puked upon mother. Yes, you do get gold <laughs> shoes yeah, automatically. I hope so. I'd like to think so. Namaste, motherfuckers. And in terms of the the idea of the writing, so one of the things about this podcast is Happy Paul, I guess it's about balance, which your book is also about. Ultimately, how do we balance all the things? Balance happiness with sadness, balance working with rest. And how do you end up sort of balancing the, the working with it? Because it seemed to me you almost see writing as a refuge I know you talked a few times in the book about the fact that well I just wrote and I wrote to get myself through it whereas lots of us who struggle more with writing and I put my hand up as one of those people that would seem like a really difficult thing to do so for you is it more of a haven than a discipline writing I think it is but actually from um, the copious amounts of therapy I've had over the years I think um, I'm aware of that now as a place that I shouldn't hide in so I definitely find words and writing easier than perhaps being out there in the real world okay actual, so words easier than, than actually com- connecting with the people via the yes. words yes that's I think so yeah because I feel as though that's my I feel as though anyone who's read my books knows me better than anyone who actually knows me but hasn't read my books. Yeah, there's that idea about being, I I did stuff in a show a few years ago about sideways conversations and that you have sometimes the most meaningful conversations when you're side by side. So I don't know if you have that, but when you're in the car with the kids, they're behind you or they're next to you and they'll say things and you can say things in a way that while you're sitting having dinner together and looking at each other, you couldn't say. And apparently there's research about men's conversations at football. Um, And I know it's not only men who go to football, but that that may be places where more meaningful conversations come. And I was really struck in your book by the conversation you had with your mum, where she talked about the hot point guy, the guy that came to mend the washing machine. And it's, well, it's much better if you tell it than me, but I found it very kind of goosebumpy, emotional thing to hear. Yes. So I think we're peeling vegetables at that point. And I think I'm probably sitting on a high chair because we always run out of chairs and table space. We should say you're um, an adult at this point. She didn't make you peel potatoes when you were three. Yes. I mean, the torture of growing up in the (laughs) 1980s. Um, Yes. So I was an adult and she would come to visit me pre-pandemic where we live in rural Denmark. And we were just talking. And as I say, we didn't really talk about much of this stuff growing up. Um, And I I knew I wanted to write this book. So we had spoken about it a lot because it's her story just as much as it is mine. So I wanted to check that she was happy and and how she wanted it to be told, really. And so we were talking a little about who she had been able to talk to at that time. You know, I spoke about this idea of having a buddy, having somebody who could talk to who will listen or, or having therapy. And she didn't have any of that. And so I sort of was asking you know, how how did you cope? What what did you do to get by? And she ended up saying, oh, of course, I had the hot point man. And I said, sorry, what? And I said, I didn't tell you about the hot point man. <laughs> no, you didn't tell me anything ever. But um, it turned out that 
when she was pregnant with my sister and I was a little toddler toddling around the house, um, the washing machine broke at some point and she had the service contract, which people did back then. And so this lovely man from Hot Point came around to fix it and chatted to her as she was pregnant and he, she made him a cup of tea and it was nice. And then after my sister died and my dad had gone and she was at home on her own with me and none of the other mums of the, the toddler group wanted to speak to her there was this idea that the grief would be contagious mm-hmm. somehow no one knew what to say people would cross the road to get away from her and she was so lonely that um she ended up putting a stick in the washing machine to break it to get the hot point man back to talk to him and I'm sure he would have known mm-hmm. what was going on, but he was kind and he listened and he had a cup of tea with her again. And then she did it again a few months later and she got the stick in and broke it and ended up having a chat to him. But he was all she had. So I'm just so grateful that he was kind and that he listened. And we all need that. We all need a hot point man. So anyone who thinks about not taking out the warranty on their white goods, think again, yes. because you might need more than a repair. But is it, but joking aside, it is, there is something about those intimate conversations. Like there's, um, you, you may have know the research on this. And again, I was going to write some material about this, but the idea that you, cr- did you know that you cry more on planes? There's, yeah, do yes. you know about that? So yeah, and, and you probably know more about the science behind it. And it's something about the altitude and also the stress that you go through. So even if you're a relaxed flyer, what you've gone through by the time you get on the plane is a fair amount of at least marginal stress, just going through the, the rigors of traveling, even pre-pandemic, and that your emotions run very free. So you'll laugh more and you'll cry more. And as a after voter I found that really interesting because I thought god I've already voted for films that I saw on a plane and just thought they bloody fantastic because you're so raw (laughs) and emotional but there's also so there's the fact that your emotions are heightened when you're on a plane anyway because of that stress response and apparently you're you're sort of coming down from your fight or flight response a bit when you're on there so every your endocrine system's racing you're going to be thinking god Callie you don't know anything about science and bodies but the other (laughs) I love it just just go with it just go with it Ellen and then the other but the other bit that I find really interesting and I don't know if it's connected to the fact you're in a raw heightened state of emotion anyway or that you're emotionally receptive but I don't know about you but I've sometimes had some of those really meaningful touching conversations with strangers on buses planes park benches in a shop you know those weird conversations where something really goosebumpy happens and you think god I would not have said that to someone I wouldn't have said that to my own mother do you know what I mean Yes, I have a I have a big I really want to make something about why we tell strangers our secrets. There's yeah, definitely something there. there. And, and whenever you do get that, as you say, that goosebumpy feeling, it just it feels as though the world kind of springs into technicolor that we are all interconnected in some way. I love it. I love it when that, that sort of stuff happens. I do as well. And, and it's the idea of being open. So I remember when I first got the job at um, my first week working for MTV and I was in my kind of mid 20s and I was being flown all over the place and it was a brand new thing for me. I'd barely ever flown anywhere. So it felt really kind of exciting to be that age and working for that company. And then my very first trip, we got diverted. We were meant to be going to New York and we got diverted because of a blizzard and I ended up in Toronto. And then that messed up the next thing I was meant to be doing, which was going somewhere else. And I realized in that week, if I'm going to do this job where I'm on the road every week, I'm just going to have to be open to whatever happens and take that as the week that was meant to be instead of, and and the conversations I had and the people I met and the things that happened over those years. It was there was something about just greeting the world with open arms, regardless of what was happening, and I still find that a massive, massive privilege. That you'll, you're, the other day I was walking down a street near where I used to live, and I saw this old couple who used to who lived in the street when I was there with my tiny children and still live there, and 
one of them was out there doing something with the window boxes and he looked exactly the same and he instantly remembered who I was, asked about the kids, remembered their names. And we had this incredible conversation and I just thought, God, that was just walking down that street at that moment, 25 years after I last saw them and I had that incredible connection. And that meant more to me probably than anything else that happened that day, if not that week. And and, and those random, because your book's a lot about well, there being another pandemic at the moment, which is loneliness, right? And and that that being a very unnatural state for us to be in. And I know lots been written about that. We're only just starting to see the kind of mental health consequences of of the kind of horrific thing we've all gone through collectively. But some of the your book ends with the, the part three of it is is what do you do when you're feeling sad, right? And, and there's quite a lot of that is about connection either with nature with yourself with others yeah so what are your kind of thoughts in terms of loneliness and and those random points of contact yeah you're absolutely right it's those weak weak ties they call them don't they the the people you might see in the coffee shop but then you're going to chat to and I think there there is a problem because so much of that has been taken away you know you can check out your own shopping in the supermarket you can book your own trips without having to interact with another human being so those those connections that we might have had. even even lots of urban planning is designed so you perhaps don't see your neighbors and so you miss out on those moments mm-hmm. like that incredible reconnection with your neighbor mm-hmm. so I think um it is about trying to reach out even when that is out of your comfort zone as it as it is often for me but trying to hobby hobbies are good this sort of natural this way to put yourself after the, your comfort zone in a in a safe space to fail mm-hmm. I think that's always quite helpful mm-hmm. and especially when we've been isolated for so long it can feel really daunting. There's lots of great research about um, telephone phobia and how it's on the rise, especially in millennials. I was really pleased to hear that because I do have to, I absolutely hate the telephone and I always have to. And how are you with telephones? I'm not great, but I'm really trying hard. I hate them. And 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 I hate the idea of doing podcasts. You and I are doing this via Zoom. But if I couldn't see you, when, when I do Zoom and team meetings via without cameras or someone hasn't got the camera on, I have to put a picture of them on my screen and it really helps me. Yeah, it really helps me because I can't do it without the visual bit. I don't know what it is, but I don't feel com- comfortable connecting in an yeah. auditory manner. <laughs> but there's, um, and, and I feel the same, but I kind of feel through writing this book that it's it's the pushing the at the, at the boundaries of my discomfort. So I'm trying to do a bit of exposure therapy on things like that and get better at it and make that phone call and take that deep breath and do some box breathing before I, before I go into those situations. And then I think in terms of loneliness, um, the, the doing something for someone else is always so helpful. It's, it's the right thing to do, but also you get all of that benefit of warm glow giving. We, you feel that interconnectedness. And you get a flood of and oxytocin, all... don't you? A bit like if yes, you stroke a dog yeah. or something. So you think that it's a philanthropic, I know at the start of, um, lockdown I when I got grounded and lost all my work because you know obviously I'm a live performer primarily and I didn't have the podcast back then and I did a hundred one-off one-hour pro bono coaching sessions for people in the creative industries and much as it seems like a lovely thing to do although frankly it wasn't that generous because I literally was doing nothing else it wasn't like I was like missing yes, but, fame hours. but I did them wow. I didn't do them in one week I should add it took me um, many months to do them but it but the amount I got from that you know every conversation you have with someone else even if you're there supposedly helping and facilitating them you get so many amazing realizations for yourself right so it is it is also quite a selfish act getting that sort of stuff from other people so I loved yeah that that's I think that's the last chapter of your book right is about doing something for someone else yeah and what are the other um well one of the things that that is definitely worth touching on is the whole debate about spoken therapy 
versus more kind of active analytical therapy versus antidepressants. And I know I say versus like it's a competition. Obviously, we can all benefit from all of those and any of those at times in our life. But do you have a view? It's fair. I can say you've been on antidepressants, right? Because it's been in your it's in your book. I've I've also been on antidepressants. And um, what is your view about sort of medication versus talking versus adjustments in your life? So I think I don't. I, I you corrected yourself about saying you know versus, but actually the way it's often posited in the media is as though it's some mm. kind of battleground between the two. So that's that's a fair enough. Um, understanding of it for, for many people, I, I suspect. And I think, yeah, I, I've tried all of the different ways. And I think, although, yeah, depression is a chronic mental illness that, that requires help and sadness, like what I'm talking about can be awakening and is a message. But if we if we don't know how to handle normal sadness, then there are studies showing that it's more likely to tip into something more serious. Mm-hmm. So that's why I want to handle that. And then in terms of depression specifically, I find it really interesting. There's a, there's a Dr. Lucy Johnson talks about instead of saying what's wrong with you, ask what has happened to you. Mm-hmm. And I think there's certainly a place for for medication, but I would suspect that by pathologizing sadness and um, and really focusing on the symptoms rather than the cause of them, mm-hmm. we are doing many people a disservice. I mean, I don't doubt that we are overprescribing, but at the moment, that's probably the best option that we have, we, we don't have enough talking therapy. I think, I'm sure you'll know all about this, but the, the DSM, the American Diagnostic mm-hmm. and Statistic Manual. So this was founded in the US. It's meant to be for American health practitioners, but it, it focused on the symptoms mm-hmm. rather than the context or causes. And it, it kind of did away with the distinction between ordinary sorrow and an actual medical condition. Mm-hmm. So it just means that the criteria for depression that, that we use in this country now, in the UK even, and in, in Europe, um, you, there are these nine different cri- symptoms and anyone exhibiting five or more mm-hmm. will get a, a diagnosis of depression. Mm-hmm. But you and I could have four very different mm-hmm. symptoms and just one overlapping. We'd get the same thing. And whereas earlier editions of this DSM have the grief clause whereby you couldn't be diagnosed with a depression within two months of a bereavement, mm-hmm. since 2013, that's been done away with. And could that bereavement be any loss, literally a bereavement? Could it also be a relationship loss or would it literally mean a bereavement by death? I believe that's specifically bereavement by Mm -hmm. death. But of course, yeah, living losses. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And any sort of losing a relationship, losing our home, losing our job, it's it's all going to have an impact. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this is a problem. And people who supported that that new omission in, in 2013 said that because there's such a strong correlation between grief and depression, it was better to sort of catch everyone in that net and give a diagnosis no matter what. Mm-hmm. But I feel as though there is more likely to be be shame and stigma and feeling isolated, not knowing what to do with normal feelings of sadness if we pathologize them, mm-hmm. if we medicalize mm-hmm. it all. So it seems to me that we can all help ourselves by from a very young age from from childhood even by embracing all of our emotions by understanding that sadness is normal and by teaching kids and ourselves as adults how to deal with it before we get to the depression stage and then when we get to depression then we then we take what help feels right mm-hmm. for us but 
That's a very long answer. No, it's really because one of the things, one of the, and again, a lot of our experience of these things, you know, it is a lot of it is anecdotal, not in your case, because your book's incredibly well researched and documented. But I'm certainly aware that quite a few of my friends' kids who are the same age as my kids, so early 20s, I know several kids who are on antidepressants in their early 20s, whereas I think when I was in my early 20s, there were very few of us who were on antidepressants. I'm not saying it wouldn't have helped us to be, but I don't, I, I, and we know this, the, the figures have gone way up in, in that regard. But one thing that I also think you, you touch on it in the book, and I think it is really relevant. You and I, are, you're 40 or 41? Mm-hmm. 41. 41. Um, and I'm 52. So we're sort of, you know, even though it's only a 10 year age gap, a lot happens in that 10 years if you're a woman. And, um, and I'm not being euphemistic. Obviously, what I'm referring to is perimenopause and menopause. But one thing that I found really interesting in your book, and I've been sort of looking into this anyway, that the idea of this U-shaped happiness curve, that you, you, your sort of happiness tails off from mid-20s into 40s and then starts to pick up again from 50s to, to 80s, right? Yes. And even though that's not a gendered bit of research, so that would indicate that, that as human beings, that is what happens to us. And I think that was fairly geographically agnostic, right? That that sort of wasn't based on being in certain kind of types of countries and cultures. But one thing that I do think is really interesting in terms of misdiagnosis of depression and happiness, it, I don't know many women who have gone through their mid to late 40s without the wheels coming off the bus in fairly significant ways. Now, I'm not disregarding what men go through at that stage, but I can only speak about experiences that are a bit closer to me personally. And one of the things that there's some really frightening research about women getting diagnosed with bipolar in their late 40s and whether that is that they've masked it well and the menopause stops them being able to mask it or the perimenopause or whether it's misdiagnosis and what's actually happening is a hormonal imbalance or whether it's a combination of those things also suicide I think the the average age for suicide for women is 51 I think and that's also when women are going through menopause hello producer Mike here Kelly's asked me to correct what she just said The peak age for women to kill themselves is 50 to 54. The average age for women to hit menopause is 51. And again, I just wondered through your research and your experience as a woman who I know you're just going into that decade. I think it is an incredibly hard decade for for people regardless of gender, but whether you have any kind of thoughts about anything that's come up in your research in regard to that, because I don't think it's talked about a lot. And I think it's a very frightening and kind of dangerous experience potentially if we don't talk about it more and understand it better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I am, because I had so much fertility treatment, I have been um, warned numerous times that I am likely to have be, be having experiencing the menopause sooner than I might otherwise. So I'm, I'm very any precocious day now, I'm... on every level. First book bestseller, <laughs> exactly. Zoom through perimenopause um, at 41. Come on. Um, so I... Yes, I've been I've been paying very close attention with with great sort of interest and alarm increasingly with with reports of, of similar things of, of people being diagnosed with depression when actually they need help for for menopausal symptoms. And um, it's interesting. I just wrote a, a piece for Grazia about um, post-traumatic stress disorder and childbirth and how many women then are misdiagnosed with postnatal depression when actually yeah, I read it's, that it's really interesting I'll put a link to that so, in the show notes yeah thank you so it's I do think yeah, women's health is is sort of misunderstood at every turn and and there's certainly um, a medical system that has not been equipped to deal with us and to to explore these there's been so much 
research into the menopause and into um, I feel as though there are many more podcasts and, and great books and and great um, great experts coming forward and speaking about that now. But I certainly, yeah, that there is no gender difference in terms of the U-shaped curve, but it makes total sense that I like the phrase of the wheels coming off the bus. Yeah. Although interestingly, in the animal kingdom, the same thing plays out. So they, they thought it was just humans and it was the pressure of a whopping mortgage and caring responsibilities. But actually in, in chimpanzees, you see the same dip. Yeah, so. my son, my son's a, a primate specialising zookeeper. So oh my goodness! Tell me so, so I get, I get, do you get these? Yeah, and the, but the bonobo ape is the closest relative of the human being, as you probably know. Although they're badasses because they're matriarchal societies. It's all about the the silverbacks aren't aren't male there, and they're not called silverbacks. I should know what they're called because I will have been told numerous times. <laughs> um, but I love yeah. So so that the whole of that society is based around women having the the feet, not women, females having the having the power. But I. Do I do think, again, if we're looking at, at this podcast being about balance and about work and well-being and humour, um, but the the idea that if men, I do think if men suffered, if men had been going through the menopause for all these, um, you know, centuries, we would know a lot more about it because we wouldn't have wanted to lose them from the workforce. And that is one of the key points. We do lose women from incredible jobs because they can't yeah. cope. They think it's burnout or they think it, but actually it's, it's needing support in the same way we need support when we've had a baby or we need support when we've had a loss and I do yeah. feel that there are yeah that's that's something I was just interested in your research whether you'd come across much on that or whether it's something that's uh, yeah a topic to be looked into further I, th- I think it's shocking and, and even with with childcare, you look at how how many women are lost from the workforce I have friends I was at school with who are scientists and, and lawyers and teachers who have, who've had to give up work because they can't afford childcare, and you think that's just that's just appalling. It's ridiculous. Whereas in Denmark, everyone's taxed so heavily. It doesn't matter what you do. You just kind of go along because exactly. you like your job and you just basically give your money back to the state. Like a sort of... You give all your money to the state, pretty much, yeah. What is the maternity yeah. leave in Denmark? How long? I know you didn't get it because you're freelance, but how long do people get? Um, well, there's a year. There's 52 weeks and you share it between the parents. So, okay. um, oh, I think we all think still... over here it's like seven years, but no, that's an urban myth. Well, you can... Um, hold on to some of it and take it up until the child is eight so i do know people who've gone on maternity leave to australia for six weeks. that sounds like a bloody good maternity leave to me. yeah exactly do they start they do start school later though in denmark that's right isn't yeah, it yeah they start school at about six and my son is seven no one's really learning very much right yet i mean they know about sort of the planets and greek mythology but they can't really count i mean it's yeah, i'm trying to be very cool about it all but it's a it's a very different approach yeah what about the dutch system? the dutch system is probably a bit more between the british system and the danish system so there is much less they do start school the same age as they do over here but there isn't nearly as much of a sort of hot housing atmosphere as there is here so they're not being drilled through sats and the stuff they are over here so i think it's generally a bit more of a balanced approach but there's probably less whittling and hammering and soaring <laughs> a lot of whittling <laughs> my four-year-old was being taught how to use a knife to make kindling of course. And I sort of turned my head for a moment and he started doing the knife in the other direction into my thumb. So after I've been such a kind of a sort of a champion of, of Danish lack of health and safety and going for no going for until you lost embracing a digit, risk and, and Vikings, like, until I nearly lost a thumb. And then you were and like, fuck I this, I want to move back cautious. to the UK, where they wear Thank high-vis you. jackets to play on their um on, in the playground nowadays. We talked before we started recording about the fact you and I are sitting here sort of talking about the perils of perfectionism, 
the disparity between who we pretend we are and who we really are. But if you looked at either one of our social media feeds, you could be accused of saying, you know, we could both be accused of saying, well, it all looks all right, actually. You know, you're both there sort of scrubbed up and looking nice and, you know, in nice knitwear, having a lovely time in January, whatever we both are doing. So do you, but I know that I certainly know for myself, there's a right old hot mess behind the veneer. And I do talk about it a lot on stage and on the podcast. But again, for you, you do even sitting there now, and I know it's not about about looks, um, but about it it seems, it seems like such a sort of successful, you seem like such a successful, glossy, polished person. I know there's a whole other side to that. But do you think even down to, I know you've talked about your relationship with food and, and with your body and that you've you've had a lifetime of, well, I think you described it as a sketchy relationship with your body and food. I think those are your words, sort of disordered eating, emotional eating. And when, when you look at the kind of reality versus the social media side of reality, I guess part of it is that, isn't it, is that we're sort of portraying ourselves with our hair looking nice, the right angle on our clothes. You know, when we do a, a speech, we want to look good. We know it's going to be. And, and of course, we're allowed to do that. But but where are you at in terms of the, the sort of perfection of what you convey versus what's going on behind the, the mirror? It's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And I think there's still so much conditioning that we are we are told that a lot of our value as women is based around what we look like. So that's certainly something that I struggle with. I think it's um, really hard to know, isn't it? As kind of independent feminist, intelligent women who make yeah. a living out of our minds and our words. It's really hard to know where to be on that, because if we're honest, I know at the moment when you do TV recordings, as you know, they're not offering hair and makeup because of covid and there's no bloody way I'm going on telly without hair and makeup. So I'll just get it sorted any which way myself. I mean, legally during the pandemic, but but that, why do I care? But I bloody well do. And that's not good, is it? I should really just care if I'm on QI, if I'm funny and clever, not do I look nice. But it's really yeah. hard, isn't it, to not care about both? Yeah, I think, and I think with the food thing, it's an interesting one. I, I work very hard now to um, to avoid deprivation and excess. And I have a daughter and I'm very... You know, I'm aware for my sons as well, but I'm very aware of I, I finish my my plate and I'm I try and be very neutral around food and and I had someone coming up to me uh, coming up to me no because no one can do that anymore but getting in touch on Instagram going um, I've read I've read your book and I've read you had disorders eating I just like to say I think you're looking a bit thin and I didn't quite know what to do about that and I sort of had to reassure her like I'm okay that's really kind of you that's that's really you don't really want any comment either way do you don't want people saying you look well you don't want people saying I'm okay with that now yeah yeah I'm okay I mean people can yeah I don't I don't have that you're looking well as a as a terrible thing anymore (laughs) but um, but that is something that's enormously triggering for somebody who is in the midst of an eating disorder yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah and there's and, and I and I talk about yeah what what to say and what not to say and yes there's been some really just as when someone is experiencing grief you know what what not to say and it's just just if you're not sure what to say then say I'm not sure what to say but but I'm thinking of you or anything like that but I yes in terms of the visual I think it is a tricky one I think as as I age as well I I feel a difference there I'm sure well I know that when I was in my 20s I didn't much care because you don't have to when you're in your yeah 20s. you don't even you think about it do you I keep telling my 21 year old daughter enjoy it yeah. don't worry about yes. it you look amazing yeah yeah um and now there are hats so that is fine <laughs> I mean fortunately the Scandinavian winter means that a lot of you is covered a lot of the time you can cover a multitude of sins with a hat but it, I guess it is something unconscious of but I I mean I certainly don't obsess over it I don't I don't have time to do long 
beauty regimes or makeup or any of that. But, yeah. But it's hard not it's to pretty- be driven by, and, 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 and there's plenty in your book about this, and it is a really interesting topic. It's not a new topic, but there's always new research about it. But, you know, we do get proper chemical rushes from getting likes on our posts, right, and getting traction with something we put on social media. And it does, if I'm honest, it gives me more happiness than it should. And I don't suppose you should really take the highs on social media if you're not willing to take the lows. It's a bit like they say you're never as good as your best gig or as bad as your worst gig. And I suppose you could apply the same to social media. But it's really hard given what we do, which is also self-promotion, right? I mean, we've got to, we've got to keep the message out there. That's what we do. We're sort of, you know, working people trying to sell our wares, right? So it's really hard to do that and not drink the Kool-Aid, don't you find? Yeah. And I think certainly in terms of of presenting and doing things um, for companies and doing talks, then I feel that that is part of, of my job on that occasion to put on a frock and to comb my hair. That's that's fine. Um, I think the rest of the time, because I mean, the, the rhetoric and the reality perhaps is there's a little um, disparity, but because I am so aware now of how social media can make us feel bad about ourselves, whatever, whatever, I I try not to read too much of the, the good reviews or the bad reviews. And I'm also desperately aware that I've you know been on social media since maybe the, I think I joined Twitter in 2008. And throughout that time, the most kind of traction, the most likes I've ever had for anything was a story I wrote about a cartoon about a Danish um a Danish new cartoon about a man with a really long penis. So I kind of think, well, I can do whatever I like. I can. You should really be a comedian then. You've up. just met the criteria. You told a knob gag and people liked it. Welcome aboard. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of, it, it's, it's really, and actually I've put a picture of a new puppy and everyone liked it. So it's really. That's why I'm getting a dog. I've decided if the me. dogs, if the dog isn't going to make me popular, nothing will. I, the most popular tweet I ever had um, was, you know, with however many, like a hundred and something thousand likes. God knows how many retreats was one about my son when my son qualified um, from uni and became a zookeeper. He's autistic and he's always loved animals. And I put out a tweet about that, not even thinking about it. And I don't know what it was. I think it was just before the pandemic and everyone just needed cheering up. And you realise all these clever, witty, beautifully lit pictures of us doing things. We're like, oh, do, do I really look good doing that amazing thing? No one cares. And then you do an authentic thing, a joke or a thing about a dog or a child and meant people go mad for it. Yeah. And is there, um, in, in terms of just one thing I wanted to say about balance and space. So a lot of the stuff in your book comes down to actually finding space to feel and letting the feelings flow through you, not necessarily literally through mindfulness, although that is the kind of mindful principle. But um, something that got mentioned, I can't remember who it was you were talking to in the book. But uh, one thing was that the optimal holiday you would take would be one week every three months, because that's how long it takes you to unwind. And then that's how long the aftermath lasts, which I thought was a really nice concrete thing to aspire to. So I loved that. I don't do that, but I loved that. But another thing that came up, and I was a massive advocate of this when I was um, on the board of Viacom CBS, was the four-day working week. And I have always worked a four-day working week since I had my second child, albeit I did start having side hustles on the fifth, but I only ever worked for my main employer for four days a week. And I fought incredibly hard for people who worked for me to be extended the same privilege, regardless of whether they had kids or not. I did it because I had kids in the first instance. And that came out really loud and clear, right, in, in, your, in your book that a four-day working week is the optimal Yes, and that's and I think it's it not just in the people often think, oh, maybe that's just in the creative industries, or maybe that's just in PR. But actually, the bottom line, um, Alex Sujong Kim Pang has written great books, shorter and a book rest about this. He's really worth looking into. But um, 
there's so much now. I saw something today about um, Denmark's going to be trialing the four day week. Um, the, even the flex appeal campaign with Mother Pucker in the UK, this yeah. the, the, allowing people flexible working would just boost the economy. I mean, so even the most cynical um, capitalists would have to see that it, it's a good thing for everyone. It's a good thing for our health. It's a good thing for productivity. Productivity does rise because you've also you've got to do those ad many things. So if you're not having a day to do them, you are going to be doing them in one of the days at your desk because you cannot spend 40 hours a week and not have to call the doctor sort of thing out, pay the gas bill. Is um a, a, my, my belief is not only that it should be a four day working week, but that it should be a four day working week on exactly the same salary everyone has now. The biggest problem, of course, is if we're then saying you get 80% of your salary, people can't afford to do that so i strongly believe that economies and companies would thrive if we had four day working weeks on full salary so if anyone wants to vote for me for pm i think there's going to be a vacancy Let's quite soon it. yes, yes. <laughs> and what would you pick helen as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment i love this i think for me it would have to be and much as I love London, it would have to be leaving London and just moving to rural Denmark because suddenly I, I vanished and and I'd been climbing the kind of the slippery career ladder and trying to do all the right things to be successful in, in journalism. I was at Marie Claire and I tried to do all the things that I thought you were meant to do and I wasn't that happy. And then suddenly I was, I was nowhere. I had no, nothing. I knew no one. And I just sort of started writing properly, giving fewer fucks and writing with my own voice. And that that really helped and made the difference to me. What was it about moving to rural Denmark that allowed you to, I guess the noise and the bustle of London was turned down or silenced, but the fact you found your own, some people de-self a bit when they're not surrounded by friends and the things they know, but it sounds like you found yourself a bit more. I think I'm quite impressionable and I'm quite, um, I was very competitive in my old life. Mm -hmm. So I'd be looking at what other people were doing and suddenly well, maybe competitive is the wrong word. I would just feel inadequate. Mm -hmm. You see all these great people as there are bustling around London. And I just thought, well, I can't do that. I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not good enough. And then suddenly it was just me and some trees. And I thought, oh, well, I could probably write better than a tree. Have a go. So it was just more liberating. I like that as the bar. I can write better than a tree. That might help me get on with my <laughs> book. Thank you for that. Um, and what's your favorite joke? So um, I'm really sorry to say this to a comedian, but I'm terrible at remembering any sort of jokes. But my son, I, I said to my son, I, th I think I'm going to need a joke. And he said, I've got one. And wait, um, where do pencils come from? I said, I don't know. Where do pencils come from? And he went, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so that is my offering. <laughs> and how old's your son? 27? He's seven. <laughs> He's, seven. He's seven, so no hope. No, that's good. It's funny how many people as well, and don't worry, it's in fact it's comedians who almost always refuse to tell a joke when I get to this question. They always refer you to something online. So it's non-comedians who come up with a good one like that. So please thanks. pass on my uh, thanks to your very funny son. Uh, <laughs> and if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anybody listening, what would it be? I think that sadness is a message. Um, that it can tell us what's wrong and even what to do about it, but we have to listen. That was Helen Russell. Every episode, as you know, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I'm going to do. And this week, it's from chapter 17 of her book, How to Be Sad. And that chapter is called Taking Your Culture Vitamins. 
Classical music has long been proven to have psychological benefits and the Mozart effect is based on research showing that listening to Mozart significantly increases our spatial reasoning skills. There's also a huge body of research proving the benefits of music therapy. I refer you to our recent episode with singer-songwriter Colette Cooper, who has some really interesting things to say on that subject. Now, in Denmark, they take it a step further. Of course, they do. There is a Kulturvitamine, which translates as culture vitamin. I know I said that with a Dutch accent. I don't speak Danish. I do speak Dutch. So a Kulturvitamine program, which is where people, sorry to the Danish listeners, if we have any, we won't have any after that. Right. So this is where people suffering from depression go on a culture crash course, which includes a core component of listening to playlists developed by music therapists. I think this is even subsidized over in Denmark. Bloody good on them. Let them have high taxes if they go to that. Um, I can't go to Denmark this week, sadly. So I am going to make do with more classical music in my life in other ways. I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to play it. And I'm going to start with some Mozart why not so that is it for this episode please remember that Helen's how to be sad book has just come out in paperback Uh, came out on the 20th of January Uh, so there are links to that and all her other good stuff in the show notes we will be back in your feed next Monday as always when I will be talking to comedian broadcaster and now star of Dancing with the Stars Mr Neil Delamere I thought I'm going to do something that'll scare the hell out of myself. But also I thought, you know, life is short. You know, you're never going to get a chance to do something like this again. Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Carisha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. <laughs> Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.